Today's text is Psalm 149, which shouldn't be a surprise to most of us. Uh, we're doing our annual uh, series in Psalms, and today Psalm 149 is the fourth psalm in this set of doxological psalms. As uh, Stephen has pointed out, each of these psalms have the same bookends, praise the Lord or hallelujah, depending on uh, your translation. And while each of these psalms follow the same type of blueprint, each does have a unique message or theme detailing the specific reasons for praise. In Psalm 146, we saw a call to praise God for the salvation he brings to the needy and for his faithfulness. Psalm 147 was a call to praise God for his benevolence and support. Psalm 148 last week called for praise from all all creation for his majesty and protection. And today in Psalm 149, we will see a call to praise God for his salvation and his victory. Um, Would you all please stand as you're comfortably able to honor the reading of Psalm 149. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, this psalm naturally falls into two parts, verses 1 through 4 being the first and verses 5 through 9 being the second. In this first part, uh, the psalm calls for praise among the congregation. Uh, We see this in the first verse, seeing his praise in the assembly of the godly. Now, the psalmist uh, does this call, uh, writes this call for praise in a very intentional way. These verses are all really commands, although they aren't what you would expect a command to look like. You know, we're, we're all familiar with the Ten Commandments. Worship God, do not murder, do not steal. These are very terse and direct commands. Uh, they draw succinct and clear lines between godly and ungodly behavior. We're also familiar with how laws are written, with how rulers dictate what should or shouldn't take place. These are all easily identified as commands, and they have their purpose and can be very effective. However, Psalm 149 uses a less direct approach, uh, something that we can call soft commands. These are denoted by the term, let them praise, let Israel be glad, this let them being the command. So my question is, why does a psalmist use this passive tone when commanding the people to praise God? Why would he not use a more forceful, direct call to praise? And and 
we do see that in other places in the psalm. Just right around Psalm 149, 148 opens with very direct, praise the Lord. Psalm 150, praise the Lord, praise him. All these direct commands. Certainly, the psalmist is choosing his language purposefully. So, what is his intention here? I think the answer lies in the type of motivation the psalmist is calling on. When you have strict commands, do this or don't do that, there is a sense, no matter the command, no matter how moral or just it is, that uh, following it is checking the box or obeying just because that's what we're supposed to do, which is fine. That's not bad. It's a very good thing and a very revealing thing. We all know how much our sinful pride rebels against authority. But when you use this terminology, let us, let them, you are evoking a natural or willing response. This phrase is expecting willing participation in the praise of the Lord. Psalm 149 is saying that praise is the natural response to the person of God. It is what we were made for. It's saying, oh, how good it is to be glad in God and sing songs to him because he is worthy. So let us praise the Lord. This is very important, and it will come to bear on everything else in the psalm. So let's look through these first four verses and see how the psalmist evokes this joyful praise of God. And I'll have... uh, Four observations from this first part of the psalm. So in verse 1, we see a call to sing a new song. And this term is scattered through a few of the other psalms. Um, It isn't a call to sing a brand new song, something never before heard of, or something original, you know, make some new song up. That's That's not what new song here is referring to. Rather, it is a call for a reaction to a fresh experience of God's grace. As many of you might recall, it also shows up in Revelation. There, it is always a triumphant song of conquering. In both cases, this song is sung in unity with the assembly of the godly, gathering together as one body before God should never cease to create a new song among us, a new song of gratitude for what God has done for each of us. And and sharing our testimonies with each other, speaking of God's grace and faithfulness in our lives to each other, should always bring glory to God. Just as surely as God has inspired praise through his gracious actions and saving interventions for his people in the past, so also he's still doing it today. Who among the body of Christ has not known the lightness of heart that comes with the forgiveness of sins? Who in our gathering today has not experienced freedom of redemption to to eternal life. These experiences are not unique to our generation. God has been moving this way in his people through all of time. And, And in the past, when he did this, his people sang in praise. So, and it's not because God forced them, but because it was their natural response when coming face to face with his kindness. So, sing. Let us sing together With your brothers and sisters here sitting among you, let us all praise the Lord for what he has done and what he is doing today. And this will lead into my first observation. And that is that praise always originates from something praiseworthy. 
when we see something admirable, or we, we normally call attention to it. If any of you walk into the Sistine Chapel and see the ceiling painted by Mac, Michelangelo, you will probably express some level of awe and wonder at how, how impressive that creation of his is. It just naturally comes out. In the same way, when we are confronted with the nature of God, it should naturally cause admiration and praise. Unfortunately, we often skip the first step of, of pondering and drawing attention to some natural wonder of God before we go into worship. We just enter immediately into worship without focusing our hearts and without entering into any sort of worshipful state. This can lead to empty, mindless worship without purpose. And we don't want to carelessly speak or sing in vain the praises of God. That does not glorify God. So, it is important to prepare your hearts. This is where meditation is very important. David writes in many of the Psalms of how he meditates constantly on the Lord, how he prepares his mental capacities to enable his spiritual service. So, meditate. Not in the new age sense of emptying your mind and losing focus and, and drifting away. That is not Christian meditation. Christian meditation is focused thought on the person, character, and attributes of God, on what he has done and what he is doing today. As we'll see in verse 4, the truth that this psalm is focusing on is that God is pleased in his people and has granted them salvation. So do you find it hard to praise God, to glorify him in your heart? Could it be that you don't take the time or effort to prepare yourself effectively for worship? If this is the case, brothers and sisters, let this psalm serve as a call to action to make time to prepare yourself to enter into worship before our Father. In verses 2 and 3, we will see gladness and rejoicing, which are rooted in the Maker of Israel and the King of Zion. This psalmist is recognizing and calling attention to the fact that it is God who brought Israel into existence and sustains her. God works His might and his power to save them time and time again, not Israel. In fact, we could very easily say that God redeemed Israel despite Israel's frequent rebellion against him. So, the simple truth that God is the founder of Israel and reigns over her is enough to make the hearts of the people glad. And this leads to my second observation. As Israel is glad and rejoices in the Lord, so he too delights in their praise. Some of you may be familiar with Desiring God Ministries and might know of their slogan, which is that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. This is a very helpful sentence, and, and it's to say that our God is not far off or nor unapproachable, but rather he's a loving father who, who would look on a displeasing idolatrous, sinful people who had spurned his holiness and rejected his rule and authority and not despise them in return. 
but rather give his own sinless son to die for their rebellion so that they would become his pleasure as they trust in his son. So, stop a moment and ask yourself, do you believe that God is pleased with you? And, and not because you're pleasing to him in and of yourself or by what anything you've done, right? Just read your Bible and you quickly realize that's not true, <laughs> right? But can it be that he's pleased with us because he has made us pleasing by the blood of his son, right? This is a glorious, life-changing truth, and it should create the overwhelming emotions of joy and gladness for the pleasure that God finds in his people. We should always be glad and rejoice in the Lord's intercession in our lives. This description of joy in these verses encapsulates the satisfaction the saved find in their Savior. Our faith, our walk, the intense personal relationship we all have in Christ brings joy. It's what we were created for, to wholeheartedly praise God with gladness. In verse 4, we finally arrive at the foundation of the psalm, right? You can, you can see it. For the Lord. This verse is different than all the other verses. The other verses, verses are describing reactions to a truth. And here we finally come to verse 4, which is the truth that all the other verses are reacting to. Um, it stands out just in it, how, it, how it opens. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. It's the glorious statement that the Lord takes pleasure in and redeems his people. Which brings me to my uh, to two more observations on these first four verses. And it's first that the Lord is the sole author of salvation. And this is a brief point, but very important. You can see here that it is God who adorns the humble. Salvation is something that is put on. God puts salvation on. On us, He's the actor upon us. Paul is very intentional about how he writes of salvation in Romans, and about who performs the work of salvation. He writes in Romans three twenty six. It was to show that is the act of justifying Christians by the free gift of grace accepted through faith apart from any works. It was to show His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Yes, salvation is a reward. And yes, we obtain it through belief in Christ. But never forget that your faith was given to you by grace. And it is only through humble acceptance of the gift and the work of God in our lives that we are saved. Paul goes even further throughout the letter to emphasize this. Later on he says it was while we were still enemies with God that Christ saved us. And this leads to my fourth observation. Our exaltation to the assembly of the righteous, our joy and pleasure found in a right relationship with God, our wondrous reward of forgiveness from all sin, it stems from self-imposed humility before the Father. It is only the humble whom God adorns with salvation and takes pleasure in. In the Sermon on the Mount, and if you would like to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, <clears throat> Jesus opens with the Beatitudes, which we're all uh, 
probably familiar with. Um, and I'll, I'll read quickly through the Beatitudes, verses 3 through 10. And as I do, pay attention to the descriptions that Christ is blessing, to, to, the, to the character and attributes that he's calling a blessing on. All right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they, excuse me, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. These are all actions and descriptions of a humble heart. Jesus is laying down the truth that you can't be proud, you can't lord it over others, show no mercy, have no desire for righteousness, or be a warmonger and be welcomed into the kingdom of God. James also writes of how we can be exalted before God in James chapter 4, and he says in verse 6, but he, God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And again in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let us then humbly worship with the psalmist in wonder and awe at the love God shows us to save us. Now, the second part of this psalm takes a drastic and somewhat shocking turn in the way it speaks about praising God for his victory. It opens calmly enough in verse 5. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. This is either a description of safety, where there's no fear of lying down to sleep at night, or perhaps of a festive celebratory meal, a victory celebration perhaps, but in either case, the exaltation and joy are the named emotions. And then we turn from this peaceful, maybe festive occasion to Israel shouting a war cry and wielding two-edged swords of, of bringing vengeance on nations, peoples, and kings. As startling as this turn of events is, it shouldn't surprise us. We know that as a nation, Israel was charged to bring the Lord's judgment on the sinful peoples around Canaan. God's command to Moses, Joshua, the judges, the kings, and to all of Israel was to not tolerate the evil nations, but to wage holy war against the inhabitants of the land. Now, it is here that we must tread with care. We ask the question, does this mean that we, as the new Israel must continue this holy war for God, executing the same justice on sinners today? That's how the text reads for old Israel. Does it directly apply to us? Or is this rather a prophetic anticipation fulfilled by the Lord himself executing justice? To help us properly interpret this passage, I have three thoughts. First, In Revelation, 
we see Christ, not the saints, carrying out the judgment of God. There are a number of references to God's wrath and judgment in Revelation, carried out by himself. Christ rides at the head of the armies of heaven, which the armies aren't us, they're heavenly beings, to strike down the nations and rule them with a rod of iron. It is Christ who will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. It is God who sits on the great white throne judging each person according to what they have done. And it is God who throws any whose name is not written in the book of life into the lake of fire. And where are the saints in Revelation? They are either waiting in patient worship for the triumph of their God, or they are celebrating in worship for the completed triumph of God. In no case are they actually carrying out any of God's vengeance. Second, in his letters, Paul tells us that we do not wage war against people, but rather against our own flesh and and against spiritual forces, and that our weapons are not physical, but spiritual. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5 is probably one of the better passages that emphasize this. Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And in Ephesians 6, right before Paul writes of the armor of God, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And you'll notice when you read of the armor of God that it is almost exclusively defensive, with the exception of the word of God. And the writer of Hebrews Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.12 that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. These verses all point to our war being internal, at fighting off temptation, capturing our minds to obey Christ. Paul is saying your fight is mostly against yourself. Finally, we come to the ultimate authority on this, Christ himself. And what does Christ command us to do? He tells us to take up our cross and follow him in selfless and loving service to those who resist God and persecute the church. He taught us to love our enemies. He taught us to pray for them. He taught us to turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. None of this is holy war against people. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, we see the culmination of uh, God's judgment. And we see the saints after they've conquered Satan. And they've done it by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. The wording used here is of conquering by the blood of the cross, of not fearing death, but gladly giving their bodies to persecution and death to testify of Christ. In John chapter 18, Pilate is 
cross-examining Jesus, and he's very confused that Jesus isn't afraid of him, even though Pilate, in his mind, thinks he has ultimate authority over whether Jesus lives or dies, right? In verse 36, Jesus tells him, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, my servants would have been fighting. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, we don't use physical means to advance the kingdom. The kingdom of God in this age is established by one means. Faith in Christ. Not coerced, not forced by physical means. Christians, we are tolerant, not because there's no absolute truth or because all faiths are equally valuable, but because the absolute truth, Jesus Christ, forbids spreading his truth by the sword. We believe forced conversion is no conversion at all. So, with these three points in mind, I think it's clear that what holy war meant to the nation of Israel is very different than what holy war means to Christ's bride, Israel. Now, one day Christ will come, and he will judge all who oppose him. But until that day comes, that is not our desire. We strive to preach Christ, to pursue our enemies with kindness, and to so model a superior love to the world that the world might see Christ in us. However, do not disregard the combative language here. Excuse me. We do wage war. Make no mistake about that. It is terrifying how often the gospel is watered down to a weak, self-centered, motivational crutch with statements like, God just wants you to feel good about yourself and how to treat others. That's wrong. Just read your Bible. Why do you need the armor of God? Why is our spiritual walk described as a fight, as a race? Why do we need to be so disciplined? Why does Jesus talk of ripping our eyes out and cutting off our hands if it's leading to sin? Right? He doesn't mean that in a literal sense. Otherwise, we'd all be walking around blind and without hands. Right? But why is he using this very graphic language? He's trying to get the point across that this is important. There's a lot at stake here. So we do wage war. We are soldiers. This is wartime. Not against unbelievers, and not in an intolerant way of forcing all to believe as we do, but against ourselves. God has equipped us with everything we could want for in this fight, and he's standing for us to defeat our sins and temptations. So take heart, pick up your sword, and fight. And to the one who is overzealous, who beats people over the head with scripture, stop. That is not what Christ has called you to do. And you need to realize that the unbelief of those people is not an affront to you. It is an affront to God. And he will have his vengeance on them, not you. So drop any sense of egotism or pride, 
any idea that you are better than those who are lost or that you're smarter and good enough to have been saved, right? Drop all of that. If this is something you struggle with, constantly remind yourself that but for the grace of God, that unbeliever would be you. And this is what highlights the difference between Christians and unbelievers. Just as salvation and admission into the assembly of God is based on humility, so also the proud, those who refuse to humble themselves before God, are excluded. Right? This is the difference. Now, which of these two descriptions best fits you? Do you worship with an air of arrogance, wanting other people to see you and think highly of you? Or do you add your voice to the congregation of the saints as one who sings with the saints and not merely for the sake of being seen by the saints? Do you suppose that God will come meet you here in this place simply because you troubled yourself to be here? Or do you long for God to make himself known and to minister to your heart? And so you've come here with so many others to say, Lord, I need you. Take care in how you approach God. Don't let your worship be empty because of an arrogant heart. Don't expect God to come meet you where you're at if you're unwilling to come to him humbly, in humility, but in contriteness. Abase yourself before a mighty, powerful, vengeful, and righteous God, and you will be given the pure garments of salvation, and God himself will delight in you. In closing, let the truth that God saves the humble but judges the proud do two things. Lead you to praise God. Praise him for the wonder of saving you. Praise him for his grace given to the humble. And yes, praise him that he will ultimately right every wrong. Praise him for the righteous judgment he will deliver to those who arrogantly harden their necks and resist him. Praise the Lord. And second, after praising God, look inward to your own heart. Ask how you are humble or proud in your relation towards God. If you carry any sense of self-righteousness, drop it. Confess to God your pride that would dare to hold any work of your own up to him as praiseworthy. Then, with the realization that your right standing before God is not of yourself, lean on God. Be thankful that you don't have to justify yourself, but can live in the power of a holy God. Look at how you act in relation towards others, Christians and non-Christians alike. And, And what you should realize is when you're humble, that love becomes paramount. God saving the humble and gaining justice over the proud means we are free to love and forgive with nothing held back. So don't hold superiority over people. But remember that the first shall be last and the last first. And finally, look towards yourself. 
recognizing that God is the author of your salvation. Ephesians 2.9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So, let your behavior before God and others be modeled after the Beatitudes and after Christ and walk in humble praise before God.